and that you've invited us into a much bigger story, a story that has far better meaning and value and truth than, than even our own lives. And Lord, I pray that that would be something that marks us as the people of God, as the children of God, is that we don't stand on our little pedestals and make life about ourselves, but we get to step down and kneel down and and make life about you, and make life about your story. And now, Lord, even in this season, God, would we not be caught up with all the things that, that uh, busyness and family and, and um, Christmas can bring, but would we be caught up in, the, in this staggering story of you sending your son as a child, a, helply, a helpless babe, into this world to learn and live and laugh and love among us and then to die for us. And Lord, would this be the story that fills our vision? Would this be the story that bursts on our sight? Would this be the story that we think about and that occupies our, our minds this season? We pray this in your name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. Welcome to Awaken. Uh, so yeah, that, that song is just a, a beautiful, powerful um, song, and we'll get into uh, a little bit uh, of just the composition and what it means, even some of the theology behind it. Um, its title, again, is, is Blessed Assurance. So I'd love to, to share, uh, it, it is kind of a busy season, right? It's, uh, things are hectic. Christmas is upon us in a few weeks. And uh, for my family and I, uh, we try to have Fridays as this kind of downtime this day where it's just kind of a, a rest day for us. And, and so we decided to go out to lunch and uh, go to the San Marco Library and just enjoy uh, good times of family. And so we put our food in. We went to uh, High Tide Burrito. We put our food in and, you know, it's waiting. And my wife's going to run out to the car and grab something. And this guy kind of pushes her back in and says, don't go out there. There's a guy with a gun out there. And, you know, really we're just like, what? Like, what's happening? What's going on? And so a minute or two later, we're kind of just kind of trying to see what's going on. And there's this guy, um, someone else has already said he's, he's fired a shot in the back. Someone else is saying he's just waving this gun in the parking lot. And, you know, we're just like, what are we going to do? Um, and so my wife grabs uh, our, our youngest, our baby, and she kind of goes back with some other moms kind of behind, and I've got my two boys um, just kind of crouched down in the booth so this guy can't see us, and we don't know what's going on. Is he mad at someone? Is he mentally deranged? But he's got this revolver just waving it around outside. And um, So yeah, as you can imagine, it's like, what's going on? In my mind, I'm like, all right, I know that door's shut. So if that door's opening... Then I'm going to, like, jump over this booth. It's a revolver, so at max, he's, he's got, like, four or five shots left. And I'm just going to make sure my family gets out of here alive. <laughs> like, I don't care. Um, and fortunately for us, he ended up just kind of walking down the street. The police came about two minutes later, arrested him. Um, we don't really know the details. But I will share with you guys this. In that moment, the things that, like, I feel like I have assurance about just my family and, and being a dad and raising kids and loving my wife, like that assurance was like, what's going to happen if something breaks, if something shatters, if something's taken away? And so for us, it was this kind of scary moment. <laughs> um, my wife, even she's like, I can't eat anymore. She's like, I'm, she's 
just been hard for her. And it's, it's challenging when something like that happens. When, when you come face to face with this idea that you can't control everything that's going on in your life. And even the things that you're trusting in and have assurance in, what if they're taken from you? So it's this very emotional Friday for us. Um, and at the end of it, um, you know, it was just really thankfulness to God that he kept us safe that um, we can continue to be about his mission. And so, again, for me, it's just overflowed in Thanksgiving and just, man, God really protected us. Um, so I wanted to, to share that story just to kind of invite us into thinking about this concept of assurance, this concept of uh, what are we guaranteed in life? Um, and I think that this is what this song is talking about, Blessed Assurance. And we're going to dive in. Before we do, I'd love to share with you a little bit about the composer, um, the, the woman who wrote this song. Uh, her name is Frances Jane Van Alstine. Um, for those of you guys who might read hymnals from time to time, um, her maiden name was Crosby. And so you'll see Fanny Crosby a lot. So for those of you guys, that name might sound familiar to you. So just a, a few things about Fanny Crosby. Uh, she was born um, in 1820, and uh, for the first six weeks of her life, it was great. You know, she had mom and dad, and then she caught a really bad fever. The fever was so bad that they thought she was going to lose her life. She didn't, but it ended, out, ended up burning out her retinas. And so she became blind. Um, she became blind. About three months, uh, three months later, her dad left the family. Um, so now she's a little blind baby being raised by her mother and her grandmother. Um, so not a um, typical childhood, but her mother and her grandmother really poured, uh, they weren't a wealthy family, but they really poured their money into her education, um, her training, her schooling. She was kind of a prodigy, kind of a genius, um, at age 15, check this out, she memorized the first five books of the Bible, memorized, age 15. She memorized Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomons, and all four Gospels by the age of 15. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> like, like, um, by the end of her lifetime, she passed away in 1914. By the end of her lifetime, she composed over 9,000 songs and hymns, plus untold published poems. When I say untold published poems, the reason why is they've lost track of how many false names or pseudonames that publishers gave her so that her name wouldn't be like the only thing being published at the time. They're also worried that she was a girl, so it seemed like girls, this girl's publishing left and right. So they gave her fake names. They gave her fake guy names. She thought it was funny and laughed about it. She still got paid. Um, at 24, she was the first and youngest woman to ever share in front of the United States Congress. And what was she advocating? What was she trying to, to teach them about? About blind and deaf education. She set a goal with uh, her hymn writing that she wanted to see one million people believe in Jesus from hearing the gospel through her songs. Isn't that amazing? Um, and when asked about, you know, like what she does, is she, is she a songwriter, a composer, a lyricist? She says, no, I'm a mission worker. And all the money that she got 
she really just gave it away. She'd have benefit concerts. She'd do all these things, and she was just giving her money away. She would live in the poorest parts of cities. She lived in Manhattan for a number of years in poor apartments, and the money that she got from publishers and newspapers and books, she would just give to the poor, living on very little. She wanted to be known for her generosity. So that's her picture. I think she's got this cool, like, retro Morpheus look going on, like with those shades. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. But this is Fanny Crosby, and she's the one who wrote this song that we just sang. And, and so, again, it's uh, composed in 1873. And uh, I thought one of, the, um, one of the cool things about it um, was, and even when I look at her life, again, part of me feels like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, she's done so much, accomplished so much. But her life could have been the story of, of just someone who turned within themselves because of some tragic things that had happened. But she really just decided to make her life about God and about others, and she gave, and she gave, and she gave. And she didn't allow a disability to stop her mind from learning. And I just think that, oh, man, that's so, so beautiful. So what I'd like for us to do, um, I put the, uh, the words uh, of the song. I'd like for us all to actually rise and just um, say them together. So if you all just kind of stand up, we'll just engage in, in saying these words together if you guys want to bring it up. Um, so we're going to start with verse 1, chorus, and then we'll do verse uh, verses uh, 2 and 3 on the next slide. So I'll kick us off, and we'll just all read it together. So, ready? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. We'll do verses three and four. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I, my Savior, I'm happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Amen. You guys can uh, have a seat. Thank you for that. Um, I know some of you guys are like, wait, stand up, sit down. I feel like I'm in a uh, traditional church now. Um, I just wanted to give us some maybe initial thoughts. And again, thank you for, for reading those words with us. It's so cool to participate as a community. Um, but some initial thoughts, um, you know, for, for someone who um, is blind, has had a sense removed from them, wasn't it cool how uh, she just used words that, that had kind of a tactile feeling to them? She used uh, words um, and the senses to worship God. So I don't know if you guys noticed all those words, but foretaste, watching, looking, vision, sight, echoes, whispers, all, all these words um, that involve feeling and sensing. I thought that was, I thought that was really neat. Um, 
The second thing that, again, initial thoughts that I was, um, you know, studying it and reading over it. Uh, and again, for me, I kind of grew up in a Methodist Pentecostal background, so they sing a lot more hymns, a lot more Fanny Crosby. <laughs> um, but I thought, wow, the third, fourth, and fifth words, Jesus is mine. For her, everything is hinging on Jesus. This is what the song brings us into right away. Everything is about Jesus. And then the last thought that I just kind of stuck out to me was, I think she captures some longings that our souls have. I don't know about you guys, but some of those words, all is at rest, whispers of love, perfect delight, I think these are soul cravings. They're soul longings. Aren't these the things that we, we want? We want to hear whispers of love. As a kid, hearing from our parents, as a, a spouse, hearing it from our other spouse, that these whispers of love, they anchor us in security and significance. And don't we all want to have just a, a perfect delight? Just to know that, that we can delight in something, and something could delight in us back. And then just that idea of rest, that we can rest, we can find rest. Not, a, not like a cheap rest that's like a day off or, or watching a movie, but, but this fulfilling rest that refreshes and energizes us. She somehow taps into these longings that we have as we sing this song. But as much as we could talk through those things um, and even talk through some of the other theological truths that are in the song, she talks about even um, being co-heirs and being adopted and, and these, this really cool idea that even, I don't know if any of you guys saw um, in the news this week, there's a little five-year-old that got adopted and he invited his whole kindergarten class. Like, isn't that cool? Like, the school bust his entire kindergarten class to be there at the adoption ceremony to witness this little kid becoming an heir of another family, legally, permanently. And is that not what has happened to us in Christ? So we could talk through, uh, through a lot of these things, but I'd love to, to hit another tension point. Um, I think it's uh, found in the first two words of the song, blessed assurance. Because I think this is the tension point that I feel like so many people wrestle with. So I'd love to put this question up on the screen for you guys. But why do so many people struggle to feel saved or know that they are saved? To know that they are loved by God that they're saved. It's a question that I talk about whether I've talked to youth group kids about it, whether I've talked to college students about it, even adults, how do I know that I'm saved? Or even what if I, I, I like, I know that, I know that I said a prayer, I know that I was baptized, but I don't really feel that way. I don't really feel loved by God. And I think this is what the song is doing. It's an inviting us into this tension, into this question of, do we have blessed assurance? Because sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes our lives don't feel 
like our salvation is very secure or assured. So I think that question, again, it, it comes and it, it hits part of our soul, the cravings that our soul, the longings that our soul has of, are we secure? Are we significant? The song lets us know, how does the gospel give us an assurance over and above our fears and insecurities? And so I'd love to tackle that question tonight. Um, uh, sorry, I'd love to tackle that question this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bible uh, or your uh, smartphone, flip over to 1 Thessalonians. We're just going to be in chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1. Uh, interestingly enough, um, this question was kind of the same question that this church in Thessaloniki was wrestling with. How do we know we have blessed assurance? Um, so I'll share a, a few thoughts. It's okay if you've never read Thessalonians or it's been a while. Or I'll share a few thoughts about the church, how it got started, and then why, um, uh, why this letter and this chapter is so powerful to help come alongside our faith and give us assurance. Uh, so the church was started by uh, Paul and Silas um, on their second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 17. Um, essentially, they started their uh, second missionary journey. They went to Philippi. Um, they were kind of kicked out of the city after spending some time in jail, after preaching the gospel. They came to Thessaloniki, and they preached in the uh, synagogues for uh, several weeks. And then they preached um, also in the city. They also ran out of the city as well. Um, uh, people didn't like the message that they were sharing. It was a short ministry, but they preached the Messiah, and it said that people believed. So they started this small church here. And when I say they preached the Messiah, it's this kind of this idea that, um, you know, the good news in the ancient world was that Caesar, the Roman emperor, ruled everything, he was going to bring peace and prosperity, and when he died, he was going to kind of be elevated up to the gods and benevolently look out for everyone. And so, of course, pay honor to Caesar, um, trust in the might of the Roman armies and legions, um, pay your taxes, and Rome will take care of you. That was the good news of the ancient world. Paul and Silas were preaching a different message. See, they were preaching this message that this king came, and that instead of ruling and reigning with all this power, he actually suffered and died. He died this death of a common criminal, this painful, gruesome crucifixion. And then he was buried. And instead of ascending nebulously up into the gods, he actually bodily rose and spent time with his followers, proving to them that he was the true king, that his resurrection was real, that he was the son of God, and then he ascended to God. He did this for all people, not just for one nation, not just for the Jews. And then last, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life and they'll be saved from his coming judgment when he returns to the earth. This was the gospel message that they were preaching in Thessaloniki. And when we hear this I think we have to be honest with ourselves. That's so far different than the message of the world, right? The message of the world, honor Caesar, pay taxes to Caesar, your life will be okay. 
If anything bad happens to you, it's probably the fault of the gods. Gods don't love you. They have to be appeased. They have to be feared. And into this world, a new message, a new gospel, a new good news is being preached. Um, so Paul and Silas are forced to leave. They're being persecuted. They get kicked out of the city. Uh, even this early church that is here, we hear that they're being persecuted. And so Paul and, and Silas, they, they go back down. They keep going on their mission to Greece. They stop in Corinth. And um, this is where they get letters from this young church. Letters asking those key questions. Hey, are we really saved? <laughs> Is this Jesus guy, is he, is he really going to come back? How, how do we know that we're saved? How do we know that we're loved? How do we have assurance that your, that your message is actually true? And again, I think we've all been in this spot before, right? We've all asked that question. Jesus, is what I'm believing in your word, is it really true? Let's read. We're going to pick up in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And this is what Paul says. Um, and not just Paul. I think what's cool is uh, it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing this letter. So it's not just like one dude who's like calling the theological shots. This letter is written by a number of guys pouring over scripture, praying for these new believers, and collectively writing words of wisdom to them. I think that's a cool thing. Um, but starting in verse 4, so Paul says, Knowing your election, brothers, loved by God, for our gospel does not come to you inward only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with a joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out, so we don't need to say anything. Macedonia and Achaia is just modern-day Greece. Um, they were both provinces in the Roman, uh, Roman Empire at that time. But let's unpack what Paul is sharing here. Let's talk about it. And he immediately starts with this controversial word of election. And what, what does he mean when he says the word election? And this is a word that divides theologians. And we hear this word, and a lot of us just like kind of like kind of do that turtle, like put my head down, stop talking about it in like 30 minutes, and go about my day. But it's really a simple word. You see, for Paul, who is a Jewish rabbi, when you read the Old Testament, what is the message of the Old Testament? It's that Israel was elected by God as a nation to know his law, to have a relationship with him, and to reach the nations. That's what elected means in the Old Testament, that God had elected one nation to represent him. And as we shared earlier through the gospel, 
What's the story of the gospel? Is that Jesus came and now he invites all the nations to participate in the good news. And so when Paul's saying the word election, all he means is saying, hey, you're not Israel, but you're the nations. You're this foreign city. You now can participate in God's saving message. That's all it means is you're now elected to know the good news. And why is that? What grounds election? It's his very next thing that he says, you're loved by God. We just finished an entire series on being loved. Again, in the ancient worlds, gods did not love people. Gods used people. Gods hated people. And people were whims, instruments. And here we have this message of God loving a people and giving them the good news. And so how do we know that we are saved? Paul tells us the good news is open to everybody now. And the reason why it's open to everybody is because God loves you. Not because you have sacrificed to him. Not because you have done some feat of uh, renown for him or some work that he's proud of you for. It's because God loves you. And so then how do we know that we're saved? We come back to this question. We come back to verse 5. For the gospel did not come to you in word only. So the gospel is not just words. You don't just know you're saved because you have the right words, because you've studied for an answer on a test. That's not how you know that you're saved. He says it came in the power and it came in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to cover what those two things are in a second. Just put a mental placeholder there. It came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit. And it brought what? It's the title of our hymn. And with much assurance. The gospel is not just in words. So this word is, is really interesting in, um, in Greek, this word assurance. It's actually only used in the Bible and writers in the church. It's never used once, not in any form of Greek literature, is the word assurance used. And the, re the reason why is this. When you study it, it, it means that you're most fully persuaded, that you have certain confidence that it's fully proved that something is most sincerely believed. In the ancient world, there was nothing like that. There was nothing that you could most certainly prove and most sincerely believe, and so they didn't use that word to describe anything. But here, the writers to the first Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the early church fathers, they use this word oftentimes. And they use it about one person. They use it about Jesus Christ. The only other time that this word appears in Paul's letters is Colossians 2.2. And this is what he says we have most full proof and assurance about. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of 
assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Are hidden. So what can we have assurance of? We can have assurance of Jesus Christ. In him, all wisdom and treasure lies. How else does Paul say that this young church, that these young believers can know that they are assured of their salvation? He goes on, and we read in, in, in verse 6, the character and kind of men that were among them preaching and teaching the gospel. You see, Paul, Silas, when they were there, they, they weren't teaching for a fee. They weren't peddling the gospel. They weren't getting people to sign up for their book deals. They weren't autographing what they were selling. They weren't charging people to go see a concert, to go hear a new message. You see, that's how it worked in the ancient world. Isn't that how it works today, too? Want to go see a concert? Want to go see a cool author? You pay for it. You pay to read their letters. You pay to read their books. And Paul says, we were men among you and we charged you nothing. In fact, we invested our lives to you. We worked on your behalf. We made sure that we weren't a burden on anyone. And this young church, these people, they saw what Christ-like character and Christ-like love looked like. And Paul says, hey, what is your assurance what can you bank some of your assurance on? Look at the leaders among you who have Christ-like character. The last is he talks about them. You became imitators of us. Your character was begun to be shaped in the same way. He says they endured persecution. He says that they welcomed the message with joy. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes welcoming this message is hard. Welcoming this message and the changes that the Holy Spirit wants to elicit in your life is hard. Are you doing it with joy? Because that's a mark of assurance that these words are more meaningful and more powerful than whatever your prideful mind or heart wants to do. So a mark of assurance is that you truly treat these words as the words of a king and you bow and you bend your will and your mind to them as words from the Holy Spirit. And last, that Paul shares with them is you're an example to others. You've progressed through learning about Christ and embracing his character and his truths, and now you're an example to others. Can we say that about our lives? In areas of our character, in areas of our wealth, in areas of our work, in areas of our parenting, in areas of our marriage, are we being an example to others that Christ lives in us? This is what Paul is saying. This is how you know you have blessed assurance. 
So we mentioned talking about the power and uh, the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to those. We come back to those by reading 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, 9, and 10. So we read through verse 8 so far. So we're going to pick up verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So again, just to refresh our minds, Paul and Silas were ran out of Thessaloniki. They went to Athens briefly. They went to Corinth and they're in Corinth. And this is what Paul's saying hey, I'm hearing about you guys from other people in these provinces. I'm hearing about you guys from other travelers. And you know what they're saying? They're saying this, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. If we're to kind of put that verse into some of the language that we've been talking about, Paul's in Corinth, and this is what he hears about the believers from Thessaloniki. He hears that this is their story and this is their song. They're praising their Savior all day long. And he says, this is how I know of your assurance, is that you guys have turned from dead things. You've turned from idols and now you're serving the living God. And I'd ask you guys, we started with that question, how do you know if you're saved? I'll ask the same question back to you. Have you turned from idols and are now serving the living God? Because this is what Paul says. He says, I see your assurance because you've turned from dead things, from false religions, and you're now serving the Lord. Instead of worshiping created things, you're now worshiping the creator. Is that true of your life? I'm going to ask a a few more questions, some, some practical thoughts. While I do that, I'm just going to invite the band to come on up. Um, and now we're going to sing Blessed Assurance one last time, um, just as a congregation. But as they come up, um, practical questions for you guys. Have you turned to God from idols? An idol is anything that you're trusting above God. Are you serving and waiting on the Lord? And then last, do others know your story and your song? Again, Paul's in Corinth. People are traveling and they're telling him, hey, Paul, we're hearing about this church in Thessaloniki and we've heard that they're turning from idols and serving the one true God. So in your life, is your marriage serving God? Or is it serving yourself and your selfish desires? And your character is, is your outburst of anger, or is your frustration eclipsing the patience and loving kindness of God? What about in areas of control? 
Do you want to control things so much so that it's actually hurting others around you? What about your wealth and your time and your stuff? Are they being used for God? Are people really looking at you and saying, hey, they've turned from the materialism and consumerism of the world and they're now serving the Lord God with all that they have. This is our blessed assurance. Have you turned from idols to worship the living God? 